This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello there, and welcome to Thank the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm your host, Adam Russell. Hey, people. I'm your host, Ryan Key. And we have a guest, a returning guest, making us feel like such a real podcast. It's Nick Ambarian from the band Bayside. Repeat offender. Hey, good to be back. Been a while. Good shit. Good to have you back, man. (laughs) Well, today we're talking about the bookends, so to speak, of visual effects and a certain type of performance, a certain type of character. We're talking about Frank Oz and Andy Serkis. Frank Oz being the voice actor and puppeteer who portrayed Yoda in several Star Wars films, and Andy Serkis being the voice actor, motion capture actor who portrayed Supreme Leader Snoke in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Wouldn't you say that this is like um, the Joe Montana and Michael Jordan of voice acting? (laughs) Basically, I mean, these dudes are fucking rock stars. Hey, that's a sports reference for everybody. That's a, that's a reference to a quarterback and a basketball player. For those, of <laughs> I was you gonna that... say the very 1980s uh, <laughs> reference. <laughs> yeah, who's current? Say something that the kids know. Okay, uh, this is the Tom Brady and LeBron James of their time. Well done. That was fast. I'm, I'm quick. Both great sports ball players. Kick it to the guy. Put the thing in the net. Give more points at the end. <laughs> so um, I say the bookends, you know, sort of the beginning and where we stand right now with visual effects. I say bookends because Yoda, as most people know, in the original trilogy was a puppet puppeteered by Frank Oz, voiced by Frank Oz. And Andy Serkis portrayed Snoke and a bunch of other characters from other movies by wearing something called a motion capture suit wherein he has dots all over his face. There's a camera set up. There's things in the clothing that he's wearing that's all captured by a computer and then translated into a CGI character rather than it being a practical puppet or something on set. Although the new movies do use quite a few practical puppets and things like that. The character of Snoke, because of his size and scale and all kinds of stuff, couldn't be done that way. So Andy Serkis did this as a motion capture. They're also sort of the big names, the bookends in this long history because they each really established like groundbreaking new stuff in each of these different techniques. Frank Oz, having studied under Jim Henson, really came up in a time when amazing new shit was happening with puppets. He did things like the Dark Crystal and all this crazy stuff. And then Andy Serkis started in the days before the technique that I just described was even being used. He portrayed Gollum or Smeagol in the Lord of the Rings, wearing just like, what do you call the the bodysuit that you see in all the memes? Oh, like the kind where that covers their face and everything? Dude, there was this dude in Russia that used to come to every yellow card show in Russia that would wear a just bright green one of those suits. It's like a unitard, (laughs) but it also has a head on it. So I don't know what you call it. It's like Green Man from uh, Always Sunny. 
Yes, yes, yes. yes. Like that. Yeah. And he would just, <laughs> you know, like 10 times per song, every song crowd surf in his like full green unitard suit. I don't know what they're <laughs> called, though. I know exactly what you're talking about. Essentially, one of those with the face cut out is what Andy Serkis wore for Lord of the Rings. Then that evolved to this new technique that was developed and pretty much honed into what it, a version of what it is now when James Cameron made Avatar with two cameras kind of mounted on this sort of headgear thing facing in. It's lit. You've got dots all over the actor's face. That's what's used all over the place now for video games or any kind of CG character that you see pretty much anywhere. Again, these two dudes kind of pioneered or were part of the pioneering teams for these two different eras, these two different techniques through history. Yeah, I mean, it's just a bunch of uh, movie nerds and technology nerds kind of getting it done. They got to figure out what they want to do. They have this crazy idea. And then like George Lucas or these two revolutionaries, like they figure it out, they make it. And sometimes it takes 10, 20, 15 years or whatever, you know, to actually perfect the art. But you look at the difference between even Lord of the Rings and stuff today, like how they did Snoke. I mean, that's the same person acting, but they could just capture it better now. It's quite remarkable. Yeah. I think it's a testament and like it's a bummer that you can't have the, you know, a podcast episode about every single person involved because it's such a testament to all of the people behind the scenes when someone like George Lucas or Peter Jackson goes, I want this. This is what I want. You know, guys like that, they're not like, um, hey, could you please maybe like just think of a cool or like consider they're like, look, I need this. I need it by this day. Here's the budget knock yourself out. And if you don't, you're fired. You know, that's pretty much like the vibe in Hollywood. So I've been watching or watched the Imagineering documentary on Disney plus all the way through. And I think I would compare that to this where Walt Disney would walk in and say, this is what I want. I don't care how you do it. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Cause I don't know. I'm not the doer. I'm the idea. -er. <laughs> and these people just would put their heads together and have that documentary is a great example, I think, because you watch how much fun they had coming up with these these methods and these ideas. They were like, all right, we have a problem to solve, but it's not like we're building a building or, I don't know, like engineering a car. We're, we're, we're like creating real life fantasy, you know? And I, I think every person on those teams is as big of a nerd as we are. And that's why they do what they do. So Yoda is a little more fascinating to me because of the practicality of it. Snoke and Gollum and those types of things are more like um, harder to understand for me. Like, I'm like, how do they make that? Mm -hmm. But the Yoda one is just like for the time that it was, you know, and the ability they had to create things for the audience to see with the tools they had and the resources they had. Personally, I'm, I'm an old guy. I was born in the 70s, but I think it holds up. Like you watch Empire and it's like, yeah, that's a little creature yeah. that is, is organic. You know, and it's not like it looks like animatronics on Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland. It's like it looks real. So I guess this is a long winded version of saying to all the unsung heroes behind the scenes that make all this stuff happen as amazing as Frank Oz and Andy Serkis are for for voicing and like bringing life to the characters. These people that engineer the finite details that allow these things to happen for us to watch and be fascinated by are very important folks, you know, they're fucking magicians, dude. Exactly. It's interesting you said, I don't know if you meant this exactly, but you said somebody like George Lucas or Walt Disney at, at Disneyland or Peter Jackson walks in and says, I need this to happen, figure it out. That's literally what happened on a technology level with both of 
these dudes specialties. They created this kind of technology for the movies that they were making. Right. They didn't just pull up a plugin that already existed. Like they, they made this shit up. And that becomes like proprietary technology for the rest of the industry to use at all times. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about each of these dudes and their careers specifically. So Frank Oz, he came up in the seventies working with Jim Henson and the Muppets. He did on the Muppet show, Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Animal, Voices and Puppeteering for all of them, right? I get confused sometimes between the Muppets and Sesame Street. Right. Like Grover was Same. Sesame Street, right? <laughs> yeah. Cookie Monster, Bert, and Grover were his Sesame Street characters. Okay. He definitely did all those yeah. voices for sure. I mean, that was part of his thing was if I'm going to be um, acting the character, if I'm going to be voicing the character, I'm going to give it its body language as well. He started really young, actually. He met Jim Henson when he was like 17. Jim Henson was only in his mid-20s, but still he was super young when they came up and they were doing groundbreaking stuff. He also did a bunch of directing, actually. He went on to direct Little Shop of Horrors, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, What About Bob? (laughs) What About Bob? Crazy. None of us realized this until looking at his IMDb today. That he directed (laughs) What About Bob? What a film. In and Out, Bowfinger, The Score. And he also co-directed... The Dark Crystal with Jim Henson. And there's a really nice little story. He talks about being, I think, on a flight somewhere with Jim Henson. They were working on something else. And he was working on a draft of The Dark Crystal. And he kind of just leaned over to him and was like, hey, you know, I think it would be cool if you directed this with me. (laughs) And he was like, what are you talking about, man? I'm not, no, this is yours. And he's Mm -hmm. like, no, I, I think you should do it. And he's like, why, why would you want that? And he just says, because I think it would be better. <laughs> and that was it. That dude didn't give a shit who got credit or who got paid what. It was like, we're going to do this and it's going to be better and I want you involved. This is why we wanted Nick to come back and do more podcasting with us because we were just like, oh, we, <laughs> we think it will be better. Exactly. <laughs> Collaborating. It's good. Things get better. We're just like Frank Oz. <laughs> so yeah, not only a groundbreaking puppeteer, but also a director. Don't you think it's something about how people like Frank Oz get where they are and just start these monstrous personalities in, in in entertainment, when you look at their credits, you're like, yeah, well, okay. Cause he's not Yoda. He's all of these things. He's a voice actor, a puppeteer, no, so much more. Yeah. a director, a writer. He's just one of those brilliant minds that sees things and is able to create them. You know, it's awesome. Amazing shit. Speaking of Yoda. Yeah. Let's get into some star Wars. Yeah. Yoda, the puppet was actually made by a dude named Stuart Freeborn. Have you seen a picture of him? That's my favorite thing about Stuart Freeborn is maybe we could put a picture up on Instagram or something like that. Link in the show notes. I'm looking right now. Stuart Freeborn looked in the mirror and was like, I guess Yoda is going to look like me because he looks exactly like Yoda. He supposedly oh. took his whoa, own face. Whoa! <laughs> hey, Stuart. It's the funniest thing. His own face and a picture of Albert Einstein and modeled. Yeah. Like, what if I look smarter? (laughs) And little (laughs) and green. Boys, I'm putting the photo that I want to be the link in the show notes in our group text right now. I don't think I've ever actually looked at it. Oh, it's so good. By the way, to those of you that are listening, we have a group text that's called Triad in the Force. (laughs) Just one better than Ray and and Kylo. One better. One portion better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so he designed this puppet, which was not just a hand up the ass, hand in the mouth kind of puppet. But like a full animatronic, fortified people working on different parts, eyes, mouth, all this kind of stuff, style puppet. But still, Frank Oz is up under this six foot elevated set of Dagobah. They had to do the whole thing that way because they had to walk Yoda around from below. 
he's down there doing the different parts, doing the voice. He's got a little mic on and then Mark Hamill has a headset. He's getting the audio in his ear so he can hear a little better. That's how they performed. That's how they shot all of this. It's funny. I listened to uh, an interview today. He was talking about how Irving Kirshner would, the director of The Empire Strikes Back, he and everybody were so like taken in by this puppet, by this character, that when he would come over to give Mark Hamill direction, he would talk to the fucking puppet. He would go to Mark like, <laughs> okay, I want you to be like this, and then Yoda, and then turn and fucking look at the puppet. And Frank would be like, uh, Kirsch, I'm down here, man. I'm under the... <laughs> It's just, you know, it's a testament to how convincing that puppet was, even in person with a dude's hand up his ass. <laughs> I wonder if at, at what point, because it really is seems so simple, but also it seems crazy to me that they built the stage six feet up. Like, I wonder if other puppeteering, like whether it's in theater or movies, they took that same approach or... I really don't know. It seemed when I when I learned that they made that whole stage where there was just like this whole underworld of puppeteering going on, like I wondered if that was like just common back then or not. Or was that an, another weird George Lucas slash like Frank Oz like genius thing where they're, they're like, no, let's just build an underworld under here so it's easier. Right. I would think that even if it was kind of like standard practice, which I don't know if you think, you know, think at that time in, in 1980, what were other big mediums for puppeteering in in film yeah. you know I, I would say that maybe it was a thing like on the set of sesame street that they had a something raised up for the puppeteer to be underneath it but definitely yeah. not on that scale though oh, totally. like dagobah is just six feet up you know that that yeah. had to have been like a sound stage that was just on the second floor almost and when you watch the behind the scenes footage of them underneath it and and doing their thing it's crazy and to think that frank oz was under there creating these moments for us in those scenes with Luke where like he couldn't see Luke. He couldn't see Mark Hamill. Actors now do that all the time with, with CGI characters. You know, they're just basically kind of talking over the shoulder of the camera and things like that. And even in a, in a scene where you like have a scene partner and it's a close up, usually the other scene partner on fi in film will literally just kind of have their head over the shoulder of the DP kind of thing, you know? Right. But if they were shooting Empire Strikes Back now in this same manner, you know, there would be like a monitor underneath that was like traveling around and moving with yeah. the puppeteer so that he could see the reactions and the lines and everything coming from his acting partner. Whereas this was just him being a genius from six feet underground, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. You have to imagine that just based on like how strenuous it would be on the bodies of puppeteers, all the Sesame street and Muppet show stuff had to be elevated to some degree. But like you said, an entire set, a couple thousand square feet being raised up like that was probably pretty uncommon i think just even for yoda i think there were four or five people who were also puppeting along with frank oz like i think frank oz was there for the voice and like the main movements but there were someone else doing the limbs someone else doing like the mechanics in the face and stuff like that so you had all like four or five adults within a couple of feet of each other making this one little green guy alive look how good it looks think about Crazy. how much rehearsal that that took you know to really yeah. master it and learn it for not just learning the technique of this is how we're going to operate this puppet in general, but then put it into practice in the scenes themselves. Like we have to go in to this container and pull this little flashlight out and light it up and do, you know, all those little things that they had to coordinate. And I, I was going to say also, I watched a bunch of episodes of, of this Ricky Gervais show called an idiot abroad, which by the way, if you have not seen it, Adam show notes, uh, dude, an idiot great. abroad, 
It's amazing. Yeah, and <laughs> the first season, it's, it's one of Ricky's friends that they send out all over the world. And he's very out of his element traveling. He goes to India and visits this. Um, I'm sorry to be ignorant here, but whatever they call um, very wise spiritual leaders in India. He visits this one guy. He's literally had his arms straight up in the air for 12 years. When you watch it, it's unreal. Like his fingernails have grown like down to his face. They're so long and curled and it's so insane. Put your arm over your head right now for the rest of the time we're recording this podcast. You're not going to be into it. Fuck no. So imagine nope. imagine being <laughs> underneath that thing for however long their shoot days were on those segments of the film and having to have your arm up straight in the air and then also like operating the puppet with, with physical activity. It had to have been absolutely exhausting for all five of those people. I mean, just a, a yeah. super strenuous physical process as well. Unsung heroes, less sung heroes for sure. <laughs> We're singing about them now. So yeah. they're not unsung. Also, Nick, you put in the notes here, a dude named Dave Barclay took over for Frank Oz towards the end of empire. Oh uh, yeah. It seems really funny when you think about this right now, like what did Frank Oz have to do? That's like better than doing a star Wars sequel, but I guess towards the end of filming the Yoda and Dagobah scenes, Frank Oz had another project because they were running a little behind that he had to go tend to. So there's actually a couple of scenes spliced in in Dagobah where uh, one of the other puppeteers took over. His name's Dave Barkley, a 19-year-old kid who was just one of the four or five people bringing Yoda to life. And when Frank Oz had to go do uh, whatever project he needed to go uh, start, Dave Barkley just kind of took over and did such a good job that they had him come back and do uh, Jabba. I think he was maybe one of the arms. I think he said maybe he was perhaps the right arm of Jabba in Return of the Jedi. Wow. So he took over, like, probably what you're saying is he took over the facial expressions and things, sort of the main character work of the puppet. I think so. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I had no clue. And he was 19. 19, (laughs) dude. Can you imagine Lucas coming into, you know, your shop or wherever they were, you know, working on puppets and stuff and going, hey, man, I'm calling you up, you know, like, or rank up. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) So Frank did the puppeting on set, was also delivering dialogue, though, because he was acting with Mark Hamill. And that voice was recorded, but then they would go later and do ADR or like in-studio voiceover to replace that sort of scratch voice performance with the final that's actually in the film. So even though it's being recorded via the headset and this or that, that's not at all the final. And in the interviews that I checked out preparing for this, he was saying how he actually enjoyed that quite a bit and felt more freedom to home in on the character and the performance because it's like near impossible to puppet and try to deliver convincing dialogue as well. So it's all replaced. If you're wondering how ADR stands for automated or automatic dialogue replacement in film. So anytime you see like uh, behind the scenes of people doing cartoon voices and they're in a studio that looks like they would be singing, it's that. I have a good ADR quick bit for anyone who's listened to all the episodes up to now. One of the guests we've had on the show that joined us for the Rogue One episode is my friend Patrick Husinger, who is a film and TV actor. And um, we were on a trip in Japan two or three years ago together. And he had just finished shooting the first season of his show on Prime Video. And um, he had to do his ADR for some of the scenes while we were in Japan. I guess they hit up all the actors for various scenes and, you know, they got bad audio of certain things. And so they, uh, Japan's an interesting place when you go, you're very jet lagged. So like first couple of days, you're like not waking up until five or 6 p.m. You're kind of like in your room, just sort of laying around like what planet am I on? So it's like midday 
and we're all sort of on the same floor, me and Patrick and a couple of other friends of ours that went. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, whoa, what is happening? Like someone is fighting. Whoa. Like I'm calling downstairs, like what's going on? Because he started doing his ADR in his hotel room and he's like screaming <laughs> at the top of his lungs into his phone or whatever he was going to record and send you. I'm like, where's my son? What the fuck have you done with my... And we're like, dude, some shit is going down in this hotel. And then we found out it was Patrick screaming, but... Most of the time, I think it's very preferable that you like go into a studio with a microphone, but he was like, sorry, dudes, I'm in Japan. So, and they were like, well, just, (laughs) so it's possible that in the show on Absentia, his show, like you might hear like cell phone audio as one of his lines or whatever, but it was just funny. Like it was a combination of like fear, like someone was about to like kill their wife or something on my floor in my hotel Mm -hmm. and also learning how ADR gets done. (laughs) (laughs) Two for one. Yep. That's hilarious. We didn't mention that Frank Oz also did Yoda in The Phantom Menace and The Last Jedi, both of which had puppets, until The Phantom Menace was then replaced by CG Yoda, which we had in episodes two and three. But the voice was still done by Frank in in those cases. So was The Phantom Menace a puppet and they replaced it with CG? Originally, they were planning on it being a puppet and they replaced it? Yeah. I didn't know that. If you have any of the older versions of the movies, or if you remember... Yoda looks different. They tried to make him a little younger looking and it just made him kind of bizarre looking. And Lucas and everybody fully admitted like he just looks fucking goofy. His eyes look like they're about to come out of his head. It was just a little off. So he looked like a bad, like a badly drawn Ninja Turtle kind of with ears. Just wasn't good at all. (laughs) The original puppet, you mean? Yeah, because the foam latex over the course of 20 years or whatever it was at that point that shit just deteriorates to nothing. So they had to make it from scratch, but they had casts and then they tried to sort of de-age his look and it just didn't work out. So when they went to do the full CG Yoda, which they had to do for the Count Dooku battle and all that kind of shit, they went back for the next DVD release of episode one and replaced all of that with the same digital model that they used in two and three, mm. which I thought looked awesome, actually. Yeah, I didn't mind it. You know, it's it's not like today's CG, but at the time it blew my fucking mind. I think it's something that you have to kind of give a little bit and like suspend disbelief a little bit Yeah, in order to get way more awesome action scenes and just whatever you can out of Yoda instead of relying just on the puppet. I'd rather suspend my disbelief a little bit so I could see him flipping around at the end of Attack of the Clones. And Frank Oz actually defended the prequel CGI quite a bit. There's this pretty long quote, but I think it's worth reading. Ryan, you want to read this? Yeah, I found these quotes where he just, I like this because I am someone as a self-proclaimed cinephile that struggles with CGI a lot. I'm not sure what everybody's thoughts are on the script and the story of Avatar, but as a film, it's unwatchable to me. People are so shocked when I say that because apparently everyone thinks it actually was like such a revolutionary step forward in computer generated characters. But to me, it looks like a cartoon, but it's an opinion and everyone is entitled to theirs. So this is cool for me to read one of my heroes defending the use of CGI in a lot of the ways that with this podcast, when we're trying to sort of like have people maybe look at things with it from a different perspective. This made me look at it from a different perspective, hearing someone I really respect talk about CG in a way that, you know, is encouraging it and defending it. So Frank Oz said, they're all just valid forms. They're all just ways to get something on screen that doesn't exist in real life. And they have their pros and cons. CG can mean total freedom of the camera 
total freedom of the subject, the lighting, everything can be manipulated any way you want. And that's a great strength. It's hard to animate characters with realistic movement. You've probably noticed that. That's why motion capture came along. It helps to improve on what you can do as an animator to get realistic motion. But then on the other side of the coin, what we do is very crude and primitive. What the Muppets are are very simple figures. They're not sophisticated. They're not complex. But they're really there. It really happens. You can touch them. You can interview them. And you can talk to them. You can shake hands and it's really happening. Whereas anything that's done digitally with animation never happened. It's not that one is better than the other. They're equal. For a given project, you might choose one medium over another. I don't see them as competitive. They're just tools. Different tools to do the same kind of thing. End quote. In support of that exact argument right there is the fact that in the Star Wars sequels, they're using a character like Snoke, fully motion capture, and then all kinds of legit old school, but very sophisticated, puppeted uh, characters. Same film. Green screen scenes like the background of the throne room and all those types of things like that was all CG, but that stuff has caught up and looks completely legit. So why not use it? But when it came to characters, I think he was very selective as far as I have to use CGI for this. But if I don't, I'm not going to do it. For sure. Also related more to Star Wars and specifically the prequels, which is where this interview came from, like where these quotes came from, was him talking about the CGI in the prequel films, which obviously that's a big part of if you're not a big fan of the prequels, you're just like, what? So he's this is why he's talking about this. So in relation to that, he says, quote, as a filmmaker, George needed to tell a particular story. And this story that he needed to tell was a big fight with Yoda. And he couldn't do that with a puppet. It was impossible. So he had the choice to either dump the story or stay with the story, which he felt strongly about, or change Yoda. So he did what any storyteller would do. End quote. There you go. I could definitely paraphrase Frank Oz from uh, another kind of interview where he kind of just mentioned like CGI is more believable if the surroundings are also CGI, which is basically was his point, I guess, with the prequels is that it's all CGI. So Yoda, CGI Yoda in a CGI fight with Count Dooku where everything is green screen. I wouldn't say it looks more believable, but it looks better than if the only thing CGI was Yoda. Frank was saying like George Lucas built a CGI world. So why can't some characters be CGI also? Right. A little bit more believable than that. Because then you get back to Return of the Jedi Rancor scene, which is the most primitive. Well, it's very clearly obvious what's real and what's not in this scene, you know? Yeah. So what do you guys think? What do you prefer in the prequels and these recent sequels? Do you prefer CGI or Puppet Yoda? I think for me, I don't think there would have been a way to do this properly in the prequels because as Nick just mentioned, the whole world in the prequels was CGI. Like, So I don't think you would have been able to suspend your disbelief for the fight with Dooku, for example, if the Yoda sitting on the council was a puppet and then the Yoda fighting in those scenes was CGI. So I don't think there was a, a, a way around that. Ignoring the fight scenes, just thinking about the faces, I guess. Ignoring the fight scenes, 100%, I would say, without question, the puppet is above and beyond better than the CGI version. It's not even comparable in my mind. But I think if you tried to use them both in the same film, it would have been an absolute failure. I agree with that. We all grew up with the puppets, so we're going to prefer the puppet. But it says a lot, too, that in The Last Jedi, they kind of used an enhanced puppet. Like, they used a puppet 100%, but then enhanced it with that blue glow and 
in just a little bit of post, I'm going to guess, but they went back to that original puppet that we all grew up with. And that was the look that they went to to invoke that nostalgic moment in The Last Jedi between Yoda and Luke. Whether or not we prefer one or the other, Ryan Johnson for sure preferred puppet Yoda. I don't mean to be that dude, to be contrarian, but I kind of prefer the CG version of Yoda to the puppets starting with The Phantom Menace. The stuff in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, obviously, I love that. Keep that. I would never want that replaced with CG. But The Phantom Menace version of Yoda was so goofy looking, and The Last Jedi one, I think, was a little off too. There was something about it that just wasn't quite right. And I got so used to all the additional expression in Yoda's face in the prequels, even though the actual renderings weren't nearly as photorealistic as things are today. They literally just didn't have the computing power to do subsurface scattering and fucking ray tracing with the light and all this kind of shit. But I love all the extra emotion and expression in his face. So I don't know, maybe I just have a little bias against the Phantom Menace. So when I, you know, that version of Yoda. So when the other one came along, I was stoked. But that's that's where I land on that. Facial expressions are an upgrade for sure. If I could nitpick anything, I feel like the coloring is a different hue of green, I would say, in the prequels. Yeah. That I wish they could have worked on a little bit more. It's too bright. It's neonish. It's yeah. Like, it's the same thing we talked about in um, The Rise of Skywalker, the shininess, you know? Mm-hmm. 3PO is just shiny the whole time. And, and I feel like Yoda in the prequels had this, uh, yes, he's green. Yoda's green. Let's remember <laughs> that he's green. Whereas in the puppet version was muted and looked like skin color, you know? Think about, though, I guess proportionally, Yoda in the prequels was like in his 50s, 60s. True. And in the original trilogy, he was almost a fucking hundred years old. So that's true. I know my my grandparents' skin tone definitely didn't look so hot (laughs) in their final years. I stand corrected. (laughs) From a certain point of view. From a certain point of view, I stand corrected. I was going to say, based on you talking about how they didn't have the computing power and they didn't, they they weren't ready to make those movies. Maybe it would have been cool to wait a little while till it was ready to go. till you had the technology to create the vision you wanted to create. This is a valid gripe. But you know, Frank Oz does back CG when it's done well, when it works. And he actually references Andy Serkis and Gollum as an example of great CG that works. That being said, let's talk about Andy Serkis. Segway. (laughs) We all know Andy Serkis as the face and voice, the facial source, but the voice of Gollum in Lord of the Rings. He also did Caesar in Planet of the Apes in that trilogy. His best work, in my opinion. Incredible. He did Snoke in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi and King Kong in the 2005 version of that film. The Gollum work was actually, I mean, this was like pre-motion capture technology. It was before Avatar and all that, obviously. So when he was doing it on screen in that goofy-ass suit we were talking about, he was just there for like the body movement and facial expression reference. They painted him completely out in CG and then put in the digital golem based on his actual facial expressions and body movements. So they frame by frame painted all that shit rather than having the markers and all the reference points that feed the computer to make some of it automatic. So it was essentially like fucking hand done animation based on his performance. And if you watch the behind the scenes stuff, it's hilarious to see this dude in this fucking condom suit (laughs) crawling around, but he nailed it clearly. Sounds like a pretty quick and easy process frame by frame in a three and a half hour long film times three. Yeah, just a weekend. 
going off of what you said about he was actually on set with like Elijah Wood and getting a performance out of him. So they had a reference to go in and basically digitally input Gollum. But then you're just getting a better performance out of the actual actors in, in the film. And then I guess early on in this like motion capture world, he would go and actually put on a mocap suit in a different studio and reenact everything. And that's kind of where they got more of the uh, actual footage that you see on screen. And it wasn't until, you know, years later, I forgot what he said, like something like 15 years later that they actually just combined technology where you could be in a motion capture suit next to the person you're acting to. And what you're seeing is what you get on screen. So what they're acting and all their facial expressions, all that type of stuff is kind of live along with the people who aren't in mocap suits, if that makes sense. Crazy. That technology is insane. It's just insane, dude. Like, (laughs) how do you make that? How do you, I understand it's ones and zeros, all of it. I get it. I get that much (laughs) of it. You type a certain number of ones and a certain number of zeros and the machine will do what you tell it to do. But how in the actual fuck is that a real thing? That like a human being can be in a suit with little balls all over it and cameras pointing on their face and then it turns into Gollum or Snoke or whatever it is now. It's just, I can't get my my brain around how someone just said, um, hey, so yes, so you wanted the, uh, this to be done and I've done it. Here you go. Delivered. Right. I don't understand. Dude, what actually is more mind-blowing to me, because when I, I think about how that system works. You've got all the markers, the camera sees it and it just plots it on a 3d graph in space. That's where the shit is. And that we're going to have the skeleton that the movements are going to follow and all that shit. I don't know how to fucking make that happen myself, but I understand the concept. Mm -hmm. What really blows my mind is that they paint those dots on the faces of the actors every day that they're shooting. And they do it accurately enough that the data isn't too screwed up from day to day. But it's screwed up a little, so then someone still has to go in there by hand and match that shit to fix it all, because the computer doesn't do it all automatically, right? So when I think about, like, I just made the graphic for the next episode to put on Instagram and shit, and just, like, painting out little bits, like, oh, we can't have this TIE fighter right here because it's fucking up the logo or whatever. I spend so much time on that, and I think about, that's one frame. There's, like, 24 frames a second, they're doing all this shit, and it's seamless, like... I'll paint it out where his foot was there and then his mouth did this and that shit blows my fucking mind. Like 24 frames in a single second for an entire movie. It's unreal. And the idea that so much of this stuff for Star Wars films, it's on they're shooting it on film. It's a physical entity. It's 35 millimeter film in a canister on the camera. Again, this is me just being like tech dumb, but like there's a physical thing. It's a piece of film that recorded by light capturing onto it what's right. happening in front of it. Mm-hmm. And then now you can impose a person who was in a suit with all the stuff I said about a minute and a half ago. Like, it just is like, what? Mm-hmm. How is that even a thing? But sorcery. There's smart people in the world that knew how to do that because it looks amazing. Now it, I'm coming around <laughs> as a CG hater. I'm coming around. Well, it looks better. Imagine how not complacent people are. Where in 2007, they were like, we're at the height, but we got to get it better. Yeah. You know, we need more computing power. We need more talent. We need whatever. We just need more. So in just 15 years, really going from Revenge of the Sith to Rise of Skywalker, like look at the difference in CGI. Like, you know, it was a preference to make Rise of Skywalker in the sequel trilogy mirror 
visually the original trilogy it was more slick but they chose to use current technology like the height of technology to almost make things look like it did in this late 70s and early 80s which is a cool choice i mean it definitely helps in the nostalgia sense but it's just crazy that people keep pushing things forward and at what point are they like all right this is good but we need better you know right just not being complacent is I know I have complacency right. in my everyday life. Like just imagine being like in like the tech industry who just constantly is like years ahead of where we are with what they're capable of doing and then enhancing film or audio or whatever. These people just constantly, constantly evolving and, and thinking years down the road. It's so impressive. I think one of like the biggest driving factors right now in moving motion capture and CG forward is just making it disappear essentially from the process granted wearing a condom suit isn't much worse than wearing a suit with a bunch of dots all over it it's maybe safer though it's maybe safer though (laughs) well played but they're moving the shit forward in ways that help the actors perform and act to each other rather than just performing to a fucking tennis ball reference point that can then be painted in later yeah i follow people on instagram a bunch of vfx people who are working with these virtual production rigs that involve fully just like a fucking iPad on some handles and some like VR tracking units. You know what I mean? So all this stuff is just to like get better eyes on what the final product's going to look like, get better performances out of the actors. And I think that shit's really pushing it. We've talked about like on some of the more recent episodes, what's happening with the Mandalorian and what happened in Solo and the way their cameras are now able to shoot video and it looks real. The resolution is so high that an LED wall looks real on film now. So imagine all the stuff we're talking about today with the actors being able to be in the room and their facial expressions and their body movements are what are really being used when they enhance it into the CG. Imagine that combined with, as an actor, you're looking at the surroundings. So you're now getting to have a performance in a scene with another actor that's really there and also look around at your surroundings, in my opinion, it can't not enhance that experience. And because it's a classical training in theater where monologue training, basically, you know, when you audition for a bachelor of fine arts program in college as a kid, it's monologues. You're not going in there to audition with another kid and doing a scene. You're walking into a panel of adjudicators and you're delivering a monologue. You know, 99% of the time, those monologues are delivered to another character in whatever play you're pulling them from, right? So that's the ability that a very talented actor has and has had for decades to be able to talk to a tennis ball, as you put it. But now I don't think it's like cheating that ability or saying you're only good if you could do that. It's like imagine the actors who have that level of talent where they're talking to a tennis ball, but we as the viewer are moved for eternity by this scene or this line that becomes urban legend and lore that they said this delivered this performance in this way. Now they're doing that level of performing with a real character in front of them and with an environment around them. It's going to be insane. I mean, the the next decade or more, you know, going forward of filmmaking is going to change the face of it, in my opinion, especially in big pictures, you know, sci-fi fantasy type, type stuff where the actors are so reliant on imagining the castle or the space battle or whatever it is that's so fantastical and so not based in reality. Well, now it's real. 
then everything we've talked about today, having these these actors who are right in front of them being able to perform. And it's not like Lord of the Rings where they had to go and frame by frame create the face. It's the actual face. That's what they're acting to and what they're reacting to and listening to. I'm just fascinated by the whole thing. And I think it's really going to enhance filmmaking so much as this technology moves forward. It's going to be interesting to see who the next big name is in this because it is becoming so much more common. You know, Andy Serkis being the one, the fucking master, the go-to for this kind of stuff. It was one of the pioneers. It's going to be interesting to see what comes after and who the big names are. But for good reason, he's the one. He just seems to have like a superhuman talent for delivering these kind of performances despite the outfit and the head rig. He just has a face and a voice. I mean, clearly none of the actors are having any trouble acting with him despite his suit. I mean, you watch the behind the scenes stuff and for a split second, it's goofy. And then you just actually look at his face and you're like, oh, fuck, that is the character. He's not just providing an approximation of what the character is going to be like. Everything about the expression, the voice, the eyes, the mouth, the whole fucking nine yards. He is Snoke. It's remarkable. I mean, he's you imagine an alternate universe or 10 years down the road and say there's five different anti circuses, you know, like five different actors and they're all going for the same role. You're going to pick whoever the best actor. Is. Right. Well, right now he's like the guy. So if you have a character you need to actually put on screen, you're like, let's get circus. Right. You know, but maybe down the road, there's five or six people who have to actually audition in a mocap. I mean, that might be happening right now, but for the sake of this conversation, you know, like Andy circus is the guy, but it picks up facial expressions so well that these particular kind of actors have to have so much control over the little tiny dots on their face right. to make sure their eyebrow raises or their lip quivers or whatever it is. They need to have such control, more so than like a normal, just regular actor. So I think down the road, that, you know, there's going to be more people who aspire to be the next Andy Serkis. I was going to say, yeah. maybe I'm not paying attention enough, but there isn't one, right? As far as I know, there's not some other guy that's also the guy. I mean, it's just, it's still just him. I don't know. You know what? There isn't another guy. It's a woman, Zoe Saldana in Avatar. If you watch the behind the scenes stuff on Avatar, dude, that's what will sell you. If you watch her performances in that suit, she's fucking great. Well, look, she would be the the like front runner as far as the female counterpart to Circus now, but she definitely will be the female actor for motion capture when there's four more Avatar films. <laughs> Hopefully those will all be out before we start getting free coffee at Denny's and get our cards <laughs> in the mail. Or maybe this recession that's going to hit because of the worldwide pandemic combined with no one going to Avatar 2 through 5 <laughs> will just end Disney. We'll see how it all shakes out. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Avatar, but I haven't ridden the ride yet. So we got to make it till I get to ride the ride. I do hear that that uh, ride in that area in Disney World is something special. Yeah, well, because it's real and you can look at it. It's not like the movie, which looks like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Back to Snoke, though. He, Andy Serkis's performance was so good that they actually had to level up Snoke a little bit as a CG character because he had this big, amazing voice and he was just so fucking intimidating as a dude in a weird suit that this frail little version of Snoke that they had didn't quite match. So they made it bigger. They added like another foot and a half. So he's like eight and a half feet tall in the movie. Just overall like leveled him up because Andy Serkis crushed so much and this little frail old little bastard just wasn't cutting it. I feel like the power of Andy Serkis's voice too is like, I don't know how tall Andy Serkis is in real life, 
but you're standing in a room with him doing a scene. And if you need him to be eight and a half feet tall, he can just do that with his voice. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. He can just be like, yeah. <laughs> okay, yep, got it. Taking a note. Good. Here we go. And then you're like looking him right in the face, but you feel like you're looking up, you know, like yeah. if everybody in the room knows he's supposed to be eight and a half feet tall, then you're going to feel like he's eight and a half feet tall in that scene. Yeah. It took a year to finalize the look of Snoke from when they started. It's all different trial and error of, I guess, the, the size and how fucking decroted he was actually going to be and all that shit. Nick, when you get through the comic books, does it does it like talk about the look? Does it talk about the scar on his face and stuff like that? I don't remember if it's specifically the scar on his face, but it is a battle with Luke Skywalker that kind of leaves him oh, well. a little hurting. I don't remember if it's it's specifically uh, the scars on his face, but the reference to a battle with Luke is referenced in the comic books that I've read so far. Killer. That's tight. I didn't realize. But it is funny in a, in a sense of like working on Snoke for a year and kind of thinking that visually the VFX people are like, yeah, we got it. We nailed it. And then Andy Serkis comes in and does too good of a job <laughs> where they're like, uh, all right, we got to fix it. And just think about like the stress that must put on like Ryan Johnson to walk into a room and be like, yeah, this isn't it. I know you're working on this for a year, but like we need to do something. I mean, they fixed it in the long run, but it's just something, one of those decisions to be like, yeah, I'm sorry to put a year's <laughs> worth of work in, but we got to do better. Like, <laughs> imagine us three band dudes who can relate. Like whoever is the actual person that would make this call in your band coming in at the end of an album, which takes like eight weeks, by the way, not a year, and going like, hey, guys, <laughs> I know that like we put everything we had into these songs. You took all this time to write and you sat here and that, you know, Adam, that baseline that took you three days to get because it was so gnarly. We love it because you wrote it and it's amazing. Um, but we're going to start over. That's right. it. And also, no, they're not going to pay us anymore. It's the same budget. We got to start over, though. <laughs> but then the best shit comes out of that. Like My Chemical Romance, this is widely known. They wrote an entire other album before they did the Black Parade that their A&R dude was like, nope. Green Day, American Idiot. The, the, the record following Nimrod was stolen from the studio. They lost the masters. They're still gone. No one's ever heard them. Are you doing air quotes? I can't tell. Are you doing air quotes that they were stolen uh, uh, or not? Well, <laughs> the story goes that the masters, right? Am I right? You guys have heard the story, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I just don't ever believe that they're stolen. I heard that the same A&R dude was like, nope. Okay, okay. I remember something. And so if I'm, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I just remember something about like, Stolen or not, they had a whole album done and then that album disappeared, whether it was because they scrapped it or the masters got lost, whichever version of the story. But then American Idiot happened and we all know what happened after that. Dude, I mean, and even just like you said, internally with a band or like just the moment to moment thing, when we were making our first album, Feldman over and over as we would show him songs would be like, ah, B-side at best, what else you got? <laughs> and you're like, what? That's the best song I've ever written. But I love that song. No, nah, nah, man, it's a B-side at best. What else you got? Yeah. <laughs> that was his fucking tagline. I mean, good yellow card trivia. I, I went into the room with probably 12 different choruses for Ocean Avenue, the song, which is why I still have a job playing music and <laughs> making music. And Neil Avron, our producer, was like, eh, 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 it's okay. And it almost didn't go on the album because I was so mediocre at my job that I couldn't find a chorus to fit over those three chords. And then one day I just walked in and was like, hey, how about this? And he was like, go record that right now. But yeah, like the idea that if someone is telling you, we got to start over, and sometimes you, you do create your best material. That's how Snoke 
ended up not looking like Mr. Burns. That's how you got a platinum <laughs> album. It all works out. <laughs> I hope in all of those instances that it comes from a place of like being genuine. Like, no, I think you could do better because I've doubts with some people that I think that it's like a tactic for some people. Yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with Arrested Development, but like Michael Bluth will go in and give George Bluth like a really good idea for like a housing development. And he'll be like, no, what are you stupid? And then Michael Bluth will leave the office and George will be like, that was a really tough one to say no to. (laughs) You know, it's like one of those just like tactics that, you know, that work. Yeah. It's just depending on whether or not like you're genuine with it or you're just using it to like push people, which is a struggle. Sometimes I'm like, do you really want me to go in there and do that again? (laughs) Or is it okay? I now just want (laughs) to be a fly on the wall, though, in the room when Ryan Johnson walked into the VFX team and was like, hey, guys, look, man, you did a great job. It's only been 12 months. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, think about the opposite of it, too. You could you could probably be like, hey, Andy, dial it back a little bit. But it was actually his voice was so good that they're like, well, we have to do the hard thing now and actually make Snoke better looking. Yeah, right. I love that, too. Like he walked in to give his first performance of it. I mean, I'm sure this happened pretty early in the process because Ryan Johnson would have had to say, yep, that's it. That's the one. That's what I want. You know, so he walked in and Johnson had this vibe in his mind for what it was going to be. And Circus was just like, all right, based on the script and what you've given me here we go. And he single-handedly changed the face of the character with his voice. It's just crazy that he has that talent as a voice actor. Yeah. So do you guys have a favorite Snoke moment or quote? Since we're not focused on a specific film, we're not doing all the rest of the segments, but I want to do this for Snoke and Yoda, favorite quote or favorite moment for each of us. I have a favorite moment for sure. Tying directly into everything we've been talking about the motion capture now knowing when you watch the behind the scenes, you know that they were really just capturing Andy Serkis's actual face doing all this stuff. His face when the lightsaber hits him. Oh, yeah. The realization that he's been betrayed yeah. and doesn't have a line to say anything about it. It's just what we've been talking about tonight is his motion captured facial expression is beyond. I mean, it's so heavy. Also, I'm... Would you call it a Last Jedi apologist? Like, I don't hate The Last Jedi at all. Like, I love it. Mm -hmm. And so he's so shocked and betrayed that I'm comfortable with that being the end of Snoke's story for me and moving on with the rest. Great moment. Nick? For me, it's something recent uh, when it comes to something that I really liked about Snoke. I mean, nobody saw Snoke's unfortunate passing and cutting in half in uh, The Last Jedi Coming, which was one of the great moments in all of Star Wars who we all perceived to be the big bad of the new sequel trilogy was just dead. Along with Snoke's character came everybody theorizing about like, who is he? Where's he come from? What does he do? And we have answers somewhat, but I definitely looked at comic books. One of my favorite moments was in uh, the, the Age of Resistance Supreme Leader Snoke comic book, where there's actually some really cool foreshadowing about Snoke training Kylo And one way that he's training Kylo to tap into his fear is Snoke actually has Kylo just up in the air using the force over a cliff and he drops him. And he's telling Kylo to use his anger and his fear to tap into the force more. Kylo's falling, you know, basically to his death and finally gets that like anger and fear and stops Mm -hmm. himself from hitting the ground. When you really think about the foreshadowing of that, which you'd have to read in a comic book, which isn't for everybody, that's had to be how he survived the fall in The Rise of Skywalker. Right. But that's not explained anywhere in a movie or anything. You have to dig for it in a comic book. So that's kind of one of my newer favorite Snoke moments is 
kind of just that foreshadowing of while he's training Kylo to tap into his fear to reach the force, he stops himself like a foot off the ground from his own death from falling. That's an unexplained reason how at that point in Rise of Skywalker, Ben doesn't die. I have a nerd boner. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's fucking sweet. That's amazing. I have to read that shit. Comic books are, are what they are. I mean, they're just books with pictures. They're pretty cool sometimes. Well, so much of the canon is being put into them now. It's it's awesome. There's rad stuff in there, and it just helps that there's a visual reference for Kylo Ren. You know, you just look at a comic book, and that's Adam Driver in it at that point, and it's cool. I get the feeling like they're going to flush out Snoke's kind of where he's been all these years or when he came into fruition via cloning or whatever. I'm sure that'll yeah. all get filled in. But between Age of Resistance, Supreme Leader Snoke, and then all four issues of The Rise of Kylo Ren, there's definitely some good Snoke moments in there. It just really has a lot to do with manipulating Ben Solo into kind of not feeling himself. The term negging, which kids use a lot. Yeah. Snoke was definitely <laughs> negging Kylo Ren a lot. What about on screen? Any good Andy Circus moments that you can think of for you? I really like just the kind of in that really... The throne room scene is one of the best Star Wars scenes ever, period. But I do like the levity he brings when uh, Ray is using the force to grab the lightsaber. And he just, with a flick of his finger, just makes it go around the room, hits Ray in the back of the head. It's kind of just one of those moments that like breaks the tension for a second. Yeah. yeah. Full unlimited power with the flick of the wrist. Yeah. Going along with that, his arrogance turns out to be full-blown arrogance. But in the moment, it just seems like confidence and like fucking terrifying confidence. When Ray says, you underestimate Skywalker and Ben Solo and me, it will be your downfall. And he responds in this like super sarcastic, like, oh, have you seen something? A weakness? Am I, you know? And then he just laughs, you know? Yeah. It's so fucking menacing and like scary. And that circus, just that CG character makes you really uncomfortable in that moment in such a convincing way. The control he has over his voice to create laughter and things like that is unparalleled. Yeah. I mean, he's the master. What about Yoda? Favorite Yoda moments? Shout out to Frank Oz, you guys. Uh, I'm going to go with quote. Since I kind of went with moment for Snoke, I'm going to go with, with quote for Yoda. The thing about Yoda to me and the scripts, the lines he was given, it's so much about relevancy. It's the bridge between the fantasy and the reality. The reality we live in and the fantasy we want to see from Star Wars. He's the bridge between the two things. And right now, you know, as the three of us are recording this podcast from our homes where we've been self-isolated for weeks now amidst a global pandemic that we are actually alive for. This is happening. This isn't a film that we're talking about. It's like the world around us. I found this quote. Looking, I was like, how do I pick a favorite Yoda quote? Not possible. Because my mom texts me, do or do not, there is no try, like twice a week. When I'm like, <laughs> I'm not going to make it. That's her response. Difficult to see. Always in motion is the future. And I think we all need to keep that in mind. This is a wild time. And uncertainty is reigning supreme right now. But the future is unseen. And I just love lines like that in these films where we separate ourselves for a moment. Yoda's ability to separate us from the laser battles and spaceships and ground us in this like prophetic reality. Like, oh, thanks, Buddha. It's wild. So I love that quote. A puppet said that to you. To a puppet said that to me as a child, <laughs> and it still resonates with me 35 years later. It's amazing. Nick? For me, I, 
it's kind of almost like a, a visual moment. I mean, there's other moments that are way better and way heavier. For instance, the Last Jedi scene with Yoda and Luke. But I really do love the couple of seconds in, I think it's an Empire Strikes Back. I don't know why I'm blanking on it, but there's just this weird, almost like ominous red lighting over his face when he is talking to the spirit of Obi-Wan and references Leia being the other Skywalker. And it's just really cool, just like dark background with Yoda's face. And I think it's supposed to be the red lights of Luke's X-Wing taking off. And it's just Yoda's face. Yeah, when he says, no, there's another. Yeah, and he says, no, but there is another or something like that. And I don't know, it's just visually beautiful to see that. And at that point in 1980, when people are watching that, that's a mind-blowing moment to know that there's another person that could use the force. And we don't know that they're talking about Leia or a sister or anybody else. So it's kind of a cool moment for Yoda to kind of just drop some knowledge right there. But I think just visually too, it's really, it's kind of ominous, which doesn't really fit the moment, but it's just striking. Yeah. It's just black and red, basically. His voice there too, in that scene, Frank Oz's the delivery of that line and so many of the lines in the original performances, but also in the sequel trilogy. Think about the timbre of his voice when he says that there is another. Yeah. The way so many of those lines when he would shift from like his kind of more uh, high pitched voices thing to when he was like, all right, I'm now laying this down for you. I'm imparting this wisdom yeah. upon you. I'm glad you brought that moment up, Nick, because man, that line, there's another the way he says that to Kenobi. It's so heavy and quiet and understated. I love that moment. Is really all that long windedness I just offered all of you was just because I love that moment you brought up so much. <laughs> Dude, another one where you talk about the shift from his high pitched, playful voice to his I'm dropping knowledge on you voice was a moment that actually scared me when I was a kid in The Empire Strikes Back. Luke says, I won't fail you. I'm not afraid. And the music kind of shifts and Yoda leans in and his eyes widen up and he says, You will be. You will be. He just repeats it, you know? That fucking scared me when I was a kid. <laughs> Again, it's a fucking puppet and a dude underneath with his hand up his ass. And th then that came out of it. It's incredible. It's great shit. I remember just, whether it's Star Wars or other movies, just being a kid and like not knowing why you're scared. Yeah. But you think, you think back to these little tricks here and there. You, you mentioned like the music changes, you know? It's like these little things that you're more susceptible to as you're a kid wind up freaking you out. Well done, Frank. All right, let's wrap up here. I don't think there's much more to say that we haven't said. We love both of these actors, both of these characters. They're both iconic. It's interesting that these people who live behind these puppets and these CG faces, they have faces that we know. I, I was trying to think of what I had seen Andy Serkis in as a regular actor because I know his face so well. And it's, it's only because they're everywhere. Everyone wants to see the person behind this shit. So they're, they're famous in their own right. Yeah, and the only one we could come up with, like a movie that we've actually seen his face in, I'm sure there's others, but the, really the only one is Age of Ultron and then Black Panther. It was kind of weird. I, feel, I, I remember just kind of getting this weird disassociation seeing him in Black Panther because he kind of looked buff. <laughs> and at that point, I knew what Andy Serkis looked like, and he didn't look buff at any point, but he kind of looked like he was jacked in Black Panther. So I wonder if that was real or just a low-key mocap muscle suit <laughs> <laughs> well he certainly would not have been opposed to them saying hey throw this on and we'll make you look buff yeah that's funny all right let's do some quick intercepted transmissions some listener questions while we're here we got two questions about the same topic so we'll just kind of 
throw them together. Lucas Bracklin is asking about lightsabers from Galaxy's Edge. He says, would you like to see a wider range of styles available or is the current selection enough? And then Joe Modic said, if you could pick and choose different lightsaber parts from anywhere in the Star Wars universe to make your perfect lightsaber, which parts would you use? He said he'd probably use Darth Maul's double blade with Luke's hilts from Return of the Jedi. Kylo Ren's unfinished looking blade with Mace Windu's purple color, his other option. So could answer those together or separate. I think that's really fun, interesting shit to ask. I think for Galaxy's Edge, I would say that it's right now it is good. I mean, there's a pretty wide variety even within each of the, what is it, four different types of builds you can choose. But I think instead of adding to that and making it like now you can choose seven or eight or whatever, I think it would be cool at some point if they just changed it up. Either change the parts within the ones they already offer to just make them look different. So people like the three of us who by five years from now are going to own like three of them, three different ones, I can go get different things going on. I think changing it completely would be a little tough because they're so, you know, the way they have peace and justice and elemental and those types of tags for them, like to change that marketing and branding would be a little tough, but new parts to replace the parts they have now, I don't think would be that hard and, and cool for people to, and also I don't know if anybody knows this or not, but Disney, uh, they have a thing where they like to um, take your money. It's part of their whole plan. (laughs) So having repeat customers come back and build another $200 lightsaber would probably be something they might be interested in. So I think just changing the parts up would be awesome. For me, the second question is way too much information to process. Easiest answer, I just want to be able to go to Galaxy's Edge and buy Leia's saber. That's all I got for you right now. Dude, same. For sure. The second they release that Leia saber, I will be there. Two seconds later. I can think of two other ones, though, that would be very dope. Dark Ray. Yeah. A little switchblade. I don't know why I said little. Her gigantic switchblade lightsaber. And then I think also from one of the more unique hilts, because it's also sort of a gun, like a blaster, is Ezra from Rebels. Yeah. Almost looks like an old school, like a hand stapler. You know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Depending on where they go with uh, animation and all this type of stuff. I mean, Ezra Bridger's alive out there and I could see them doing another series with him. So maybe if he becomes more of a like towards being a household name, maybe they could bring his lightsaber into Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, I'm a big fan of any lightsaber that has gold on it. I love Mace Windu's. I love Leia's with that kind of rose gold look. Palpatine's though looks a little too like it's too kind of fancy and stylized. I would love to see something like a combination of Luke and Obi-Wan's where part of the the middle of the hilt, it's made from like a, a World War II grenade. Do you know, I don't know if you know mm-hmm. like the history of, of those parts and shit, but it's the, the part that's kind of black and ribbed almost, you know, that's actually like mm-hmm. a grenade piece. That with some gold on it, something like a weathered, more used version of Palpatine's with a green blade, I think. If I could just pull parts from everything, that's what I would make myself. And for Galaxy's Edge, honestly, the only thing that I would have liked to see, again, I can't complain about that experience at all because the experience itself was worth the 200 bucks. I wish they had some pieces that were full shiny chrome, yeah, like some of the actual on-screen sabers. All of it being that sort of matte silver isn't my favorite, but again, not complaining. But it is still substantial, right? It's not plastic, Yeah, it's all metal. Right? Yeah. I would just like some shininess, even if it's beat up. Agreed. All right. 
Tashi Station. I was going into Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. Come on, let's go. I made that with my computer. <laughs> you guys got anything? What's the new hotness in your world? Uh... I've got one. I'll go first, and you can thank you order last. There's a YouTube channel called Corridor Crew. It's a visual effects channel that I, I reference a lot. They have a series called Visual Effects Artists React. They have another series called We Made So-and-So R-Rated. They've done Marvel, they've done Home Alone, and they did a Star Wars episode. So they took a bunch of fight scenes and different stuff from Star Wars and made it R-Rated, put a bunch of blood in it, and it's pretty, it's pretty funny. I actually enjoy watching the making of videos more than the actual video itself because I'm just I'm a nerd like that. But it's great shit. We'll put it in the show notes. And they also have a lot of Star Wars-themed stuff. That's actually how I found them. They did a video called The Real. It was something like The Real Scale of Star Wars Starships or something like that. And they essentially put Star Destroyers and everything else, they kind of superimposed it into Earth locations to actually see how big Star Destroyers, Death Star, and so on would be. Super interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that they were behind that, but I'm pretty sure I've seen some of those photos where like a Star Destroyer is the size of Manhattan. Yeah. Something like that. Pretty amazing. Mind-bending. Well, I've been... Totally on a solo mission here because I can't find anyone who watches the show Westworld, but I'm absolutely obsessed with the show Westworld. Dude, <laughs> you have you, my telephone number. Yeah, Text yeah. me. I'm okay. getting a Westworld tattoo. You're now podcasting <laughs> okay. with two complete. As soon as the episode's over, I wait until someone puts up a YouTube recap, like yeah. dissection of the episode so I can watch it. Thank goodness. All right. Then I'm, I'm sending you both a podcast called The Recapables Westworld. And somewhere that's like in a desert, we have to go get Westworld tattoos. I'm in. But I'm, I'm trying to get on social media, trying to have conversations with people. No one's biting back. And I'm like, am I just falling from some more J.J. Abrams split timeline bullshit? And I'm just so into it. I think it's amazing. Thandie Newton is absolutely all of a sudden in my top three of celebrity crushes. I just can't get enough of this show. I made my girlfriend watch the first season and I don't think there's, I think she's out. <laughs> I don't think there's going to be a second season for her, but uh, I only recently finished season two. So I think I kind of fell off with a lot of people. But once I saw that Aaron Paul was in season three and that it was just fully spoiler alert, sorry, just fully not even in Westworld anymore. I was just like, all right, I'm back in. That's all yeah. I need. Aaron Paul and a trajectory that leads them off the island. Oh my God. I sound like I'm talking about lost again. It's crazy. Yeah. But uh, I'm falling for it and I just absolutely love it. We'll see where it goes, but I can't recommend it enough. It's just one of those kind of like puzzly shows where you're constantly looking at for Easter eggs, trying to figure things out. And I don't enjoy all shows that are like that, but I'm super into this one. We can't spoil, but the, the Easter egg, the Easter egg from episode two, if you know what I'm talking about, just the creature they show behind the glass. Yeah, that, that's just yeah. from another show. <laughs> like it's oh just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so yeah. good. It has fully when it launched the first season. It fully filled the void that Lost left when it ended for yeah. me, and then some. It, it has surpassed Lost by far. Yeah, fuck. It was one of those things though where I feel like I've talked it up so much. I definitely hyped it up way too much for my girlfriend, and we got through season one for her. It's about I think my third time watching it. All the big moments and all the big twists in it, it would be one of those things where I just look at her right away, <laughs> waiting for her to be impressed, and she's not. I'm like, oh, shit. All right. 
I don't know if this is for her, but she's her IQ when it comes to reading or watching televisions or anything totally stomps on my IQ when it comes to watching things. I'm like, wait, I need to rewind that or wait, let me watch that five times. And she's just like, yeah, I get it. Okay, whatever. It's frustrating sometimes how dumb I could be. (laughs) (laughs) My Tasha Station, I guess I hate to keep harping on the uh, pandemic quarantine, but, you know, when people go back and listen to these, it's the reality of where we were at when we were making them. So it's relevant. But I have started to uh, really make meditation a part of my daily routine in my life. I'm a pretty neurotic dude and I get really stressed out and I don't think I struggle with any kind of like clinical depression or anything that needs to be medicated, but I do get very, very overly stressed. And I think I suffer from really higher than normal anxiety when it comes to my stress levels and stuff. Again, not in a place where I need to be medicated for. And I know people struggle with it on those levels too. And I can't even imagine knowing what I go through, what that must be like. But just in an effort to kind of curb some of that through this time, because I'm just feeling really uneasy about the future and career-wise and everything else, you know? So I've really just tried to take the advice of some of my friends who have made it a big part of their life and have really recommended it so highly to say, dude, just trust me if you put this into your routine, it's really going to change your life. So I was given uh, a gift card by a good friend who it's a big part of of their life to get on the Calm app. I am new to it, so I want to learn how to do it properly and, you know, be able to really integrate it into my daily routine and make a habit out of it. But the Calm app, if you do sign up and pay for to unlock all of it, so you can just, you know, go through all the different features. Like last night I had Matthew McConaughey read me a bedtime story and it was unreal. Put me right to sleep. It was awesome. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm taking this kind of, I would call it a course, I guess. It's like a 30-day course, uh, literally just called How to Meditate. And it's instructed by a dude named Jeff Warren. It's so cool. And I feel so, re- I relate to it so much. He talks at the beginning a lot about how in his 20s, he was kind of wandering aimlessly and like drinking too much and partying and just sort of like numbing the pain with things that were not good for him and his mental health and meditating. I don't get the sense that he's someone that like necessarily felt he was clinical either, but just that he needed to find something else to help him deal with his mental health and meditating was the thing he found. So he gives this incredible daily instruction. It's 10 minutes of your day. It's like nothing. And I'm the worst at that, by the way, like getting a a new habit. Like even if it's like you can work out for 30 minutes a day, it's only 30 minutes. I'm like, but then I got to like change and shower and (laughs) you know, I'm I'm that guy. (laughs) So 10 minutes even is like, come on, I gotta, I gotta set up the, it's the like most first world problem, lazy thing of like, I got to connect my phone to my home pods and press play and sit down in a comfortable place and spend all those things would be like why I would be annoyed to do it. And then I actually started doing it and it is already having such a, an unbelievable impact on my daily life. So there's lots of free stuff you can access, by the way, too. If you just want to test the waters, you can just download the Calm app and like check it out. This is not a paid, a paid advertisement. This is just me telling you that I found something that in this time of really challenging mental health for all of us, it's been really, really positive for me. So, and I, but if you do decide to pay for it and really get into it, I, I highly recommend Jeff Warren, how to meditate on the call map. Good shit. Keeping with the positive vibes. Let's do a quote of the week. This quote is by none other than Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker. In a conversation with Frank Oz, he was actually sexually being interviewed by Frank Oz for an event. He was 
talking about voiceover actors, he said, I'm in awe of voiceover actors. They're so talented. And it's unfair to me that they call them voiceover actors. He was using air quotes because it marginalizes them in a way that they don't deserve. First and foremost, they're incredibly good actors, as good as anyone I've worked with on stage, television, screen. And they're so versatile. They come out of improv, out of stand up comedy. And then he goes on to make the same kind of point about people like Frank Oz. He says, they think you just do the voice or you're not a legitimate actor. When someone who sees it from my end knows how not only are you great actors, you put every ounce of your body into the physicality of the puppet. Hell of respect from Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill is one of the absolute best followers on social media. I mean, if you're a Star Wars fan you and you're not following him, I don't really know what you're doing with your life, but if you're not a Star Wars fan and you happen to be listening to a Star Wars podcast right now, <laughs> that would be pretty cool. But I'm telling you that you should follow Mark Hamill on Twitter. He's He goes everywhere from letting you in on his personal life and his professional life in a very tasteful way where it's not like social media influencer level of like, I want attention. He's just giving you really cool insights on what he does for a living. But also he has a lot of really great color commentary on just life in general. So follow him. Solid dude. Hey, Nick, thanks for coming back, dude. Of course. Yeah, man. I'm just happy I get to talk to other people besides myself about Star Wars. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here for. And now Westworld, apparently. Fuck yeah. Well, let's just make a pact right now. If this actually really takes off, Westworld podcast is up next. I agree. Well, until the next quarantine cast, I'm Adam Russell. I'm Ryan Key. Nick, tell them who you are. You're here. And I'm Nick Anbarian. May the force be with you. 